Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We continue this week going through this wonderful and very fast-moving Old Testament book. In case you've forgotten, this yellow mark up here is how tall the Philistine giant Goliath was, nine feet, nine inches, and that's from the floor, not from this platform. This giant Philistine has fallen, fallen by the hand of a young man who answered the call in the Lord's name. The contempt that was shown to David came because of his youth and his not being equipped to fight this particular battle. But we've learned as we looked at this event three weeks ago that there was contempt even from his own brother, Eliab, and from King Saul himself, and from the giant. And none of it, none of it bothered David. None of it bothered David. David was concerned for the honor of the Lord's name the Lord's reputation, and the Lord's glory. What did bother David was the utter disrespect for the Lord God Almighty and the Lord's army. That the, this uncircumcised Philistine spewed out, we saw twice a day for 40 days with no one coming forward to fight him. The people of God and their army were totally demoralized, expecting really nothing but defeat. But when the stone from David's sling sank into Goliath's forehead and he fell on his face to the ground, which we read in chapter 17, verse 49, everything suddenly changed. Since David had no sword, He took Goliath and cut off the giant's head. Now, panicked by the impossible death of their hero, the Philistines turned tail and ran. They fled from the scene. And you might notice that because of that, they did not honor Goliath's terms of battle, which he spelled out very clearly, which was that if the Israelite who finally came out against him won, all the Philistines would become willing servants of Israel. They didn't keep that deal. But the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and Ekron, and the people plundered the Philistine camp. What a turn of events. And David took the head of the Philistine Goliath and brought it to Jerusalem, we read. Now, why did he do that? Well, sometimes we lose track of time when we read these events. Jerusalem and its Canaanite inhabitants, the Jebusites, were still not under Israel's control. 
Jerusalem was supposed to be conquered by both the tribes of Benjamin and Judah as it lay between their territories, but it had never happened. The Israelites had never fallen, you know, carried this out completely. They didn't follow through. And this was a complete embarrassment to Israel. Now, David obviously knew this. And he took advantage of his victory over Goliath to send a message about what was coming to the remaining Jebusites. What a message. A man that tall, can we say he had a very large head to be carried? No longer would the people of God be unfaithful to the Lord, is this message in not obeying him and fully conquering all of the promised land. David knew his victory was of the Lord, and he was serving notice that with the Lord, Israel would be coming to deal with these Canaanites, the Jebusites. And it happens later. We know that. Today we will finish chapter 17 and then be reintroduced to Saul's son, Jonathan. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel 17, verse 55, through the fifth verse of chapter 18. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, Whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took David that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David in his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, there's probably a question in your mind about this question, if you're following the flow of this story. Chapter 17 ends with an account of a conversation between Saul and the commander of his army, Abner. These verses begin 
by taking us back in time to when David was going out to meet Goliath in battle earlier in chapter 17. So it's sort of a flashback. Saul's question to Abner is simply, Abner, whose son is this youth? Saul is not asking who David is. Since David had been in Saul's service and had just presented himself to Saul to volunteer to take on this giant. He knows who he is. He's asking Abner whose David's father is. Why? Okay, we'll answer this. Well, remember that Saul had made some incredible promises to the man who would go out and defeat Goliath. Remember that? But even so, no one volunteered until David did. But one of those promises was to give the victor his daughter in marriage. The others were to give him great riches and making the victor's father's house free, is how it says it in the text, which would be the equivalent of a tax-free life in Israel. This means that as David walks out to meet Goliath, Saul is simply covering the bases and thinking that if by some miracle David is victorious, there's going to have to be some arrangements made with David's father. Saul is asking about David's family's background and their social status, since he would be giving his daughter away to be part of that family. There's a couple of you guys in this congregation right now sitting close to the front who are about ready to understand this in a whole new way. And Saul then would be related to that family. And if victorious, David's father's house would be tax-free. So all the accountants in the room can go, oh, yeah, they'd be coming talking to me and trying to arrange how that would work. So he wanted to know who that is, who David's father is, and he just couldn't remember. Because when David came to Saul's court, by recommendation of Saul's servants that he could play the lyre and he was a great musician and that would comfort Saul in his distress. David came in from the countryside and he had some he was bearing gifts that his father had sent, but it would be easy to forget who's David who David's father really was. And when he asked Abner, Abner didn't have a clue either. He didn't know. So when David returned to Saul with Goliath's head, his promises were going to have to be kept, although we know Saul kind of hedges on those. So David was asked the question, and he answered it. Interesting paragraph, huh? Now we come to chapter 18 about Jonathan, once again, it's hard to miss the stark contrast between the calculating father, Saul, 
and his God-fearing son, Jonathan. One writer put it like this, Instead of giving David a warm thanks and a joyful embrace, can you picture this scene? David comes back with the head of the giant. And Saul sizes David up. There's nothing in the text about a great celebration here on the, from the king himself. He sizes David up, looking upon the hero as little more than a piece on his personal chessboard. How different, how different from Saul was his son Jonathan, whose heart burned with a fervent faith, a love for God's people, a zeal for the Lord's glory. Jonathan's soul was rejoicing in David's victory over Israel's enemy, whom he and Saul's other champions had trembled to face, and they didn't go forward. And Jonathan literally leapt up at the sight of this young David and saw neither a political asset nor a threat. What did he see? He saw a fellow believer who was worthy of his highest love and devotion. What a contrast. Jonathan is a remarkable biblical figure. And we need to look closer here at his attitude and his actions. First, let's look at his attitude. In verse 1 of chapter 18, we read, As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Why was this response from Jonathan so remarkable and so unexpected? Well, just think about this. Because Jonathan is the royal prince who had already earned the respect of his people. He's a valiant warrior. And I don't know if many have thought about this, but Jonathan is much older than David. He and David are from different tribes, different backgrounds. In other words, they had very different past experiences. David had much to gain from this friendship, But Jonathan had much to lose. Jonathan would have very understandable reasons for resenting and being jealous of David. Because historically in these kinds of situations, a royal prince is usually fighting to keep his reputation intact, his position intact, his popularity intact against some rising unknown who is now a great hero. I mean, how many books and stories and historical events have centered around this very scenario? Yet, that's not what we see from Jonathan at all, is it? That's why he's in, this is an incredible man. 
Instead of resenting David, we read here that Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Instead of keeping aloof from David, we read that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And what exactly does that mean? That Jonathan's soul was knit to the soul of David. Well, basically, this is a, a way to express we, something we might say, they were kindred spirits, but we need to understand why. They had a very deep level of understanding with one another. Why? Because their deepest commitments and loyalty and concerns and their ultimate priority was the same. Jonathan saw David's response to Goliath's contempt for God and his people. And that resonated in his own heart. It just thrilled him. We've already seen two times back in chapters 13 and 14 in which Jonathan, against overwhelming odds, while the people of Israel and his father were paralyzed by fear, Jonathan took the initiative to respond by attacking a Philistine garrison and an outpost. Remember those stories? He was the only one who acted. And one time he asked his armor bearer to go with him, and his armor bearer just looked at him and went, Sure, I know what kind of a man you are. I'm one of God's too. Let's go. I'll go anywhere you go. There was another guy that was knit. Jonathan saw firsthand David's faithful humility as he served the Lord and the king. And that resonated in his heart. During the rout of the Philistines in chapter 14, which Jonathan's action had started, he was unaware of his father's edict telling his soldiers not to eat anything. And Jonathan had eaten a little honey. And when made aware of it, Saul had actually determined to follow through and put his son to death. But the army intervened and saved Jonathan's life. But do you remember how Jonathan answered the question, did you eat anything? Jonathan truthfully declared what he'd done, and he said, here I am, I will die. He did not oppose his father's will. The stark contrast between Saul and Jonathan is meant to remind us of something that is absolutely crucial to understand. Envy and resentment and hatred come from worldly and fleshly priorities. Godly love can only come from a concern for the kingdom of God and his gospel. And that's the difference. We've seen it over and over again already. 
here it is being pictured and spelled out in a completely different scenario. And you know what? Godly love is not something that you can manufacture or fake. Well, you can fake it, but it won't last very long. Your basic attitude will be seen in your actions, and it can't be covered up over time. The friendship between Jonathan and David began with a common attitude about life and what's really important that both men recognized in the other one. What bound them together was their faith in the Lord God Almighty. And Christians have known this, people of God have known this since there were people. You can go someplace completely foreign to your own environment and become aware of a situation and see somebody who is trusting God just like you are and steps out in faith and stands up for him and immediately what happens to your own heart? He just goes right out to him. You just want to be a part of that fellowship. And that's what's happening here. And it's happening in a very ex- extraordinary way. Their souls were knit together because Jonathan saw in David's heart a heart belonging to the Lord, committed to the Lord's glory, grateful to serve the Lord and his people, and vice versa. Jonathan, especially as seen in these texts, has been set free from worldly thinking and concern so he can truly love God and others. And this is why the New Testament sees genuine love as the summation of our faith. As Paul put it, in Christ is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And that's what's going on here. Our battles are with worldly thinking and concerns. Do you get the point? Already it should be becoming clear. If you're battling with resentment, envy, worry, a flattening of your love, where did it go? This is the answer. The answer is remember what God has done for you Remember how great he is so that your heart will first be back into sync with the God that you say you love. And in that gratitude, all of a sudden, you know your love for him and then it goes to everybody else you know that also has that same commitment. In other words, this is pretty basic stuff, but it's so subtle sometimes when we are completely blinded to those kind of circumstances because of our own sin, our own feeding the rebellion, feeding the resentment, feeding the envy, feeding the loss of position. One commentator explains it like this. 
Is there anything so beautiful as a beautiful heart? After over 3,000 years, we are still thrilled by this story of Jonathan, the character of Jonathan. And well were it for every young man that dates who wrote this, because nobody says that anymore. And well were it for every young man that he shared in some degree Jonathan's high nobility. Self-seekers and self-pleasers need to look at him and be ashamed. See, this is not a, oh, be like David, be like Jonathan. This is like, understand what made these guys tick and how great your God is and realize how we need to hit our knees and deal with our own hearts. And you know what? Jonathan's actions show up big time here in his, this covenant of love. Jonathan's and, and David's relationship was one of companionship and brotherhood. The love of close friends. And don't let anybody in our warped, perverted day try to tell you their relationship was anything else. That is completely ridiculous to the text. This is the love of close friends. And what kinds of actions describe and define this love between godly friends? And we see it here. First, love rejoices. Jonathan rejoices in David's faith and achievements. Notice that chapter 18 begins with, as soon as David had finished speaking with Saul. He didn't go back and kick his door in and go, oh no, there's a guy on the scene, he's going to take my place. Immediately, his heart rejoiced at what had happened. Why? Because he was concerned with God's reputation, just like David. He wanted God's name to be lifted up, just like David. And so immediately, he was there with him. And he had demonstrated it in his past as well. Immediately, Jonathan was rejoicing in the Lord with and for David for what had happened. As already mentioned, Jonathan had been somewhat alone in his own stand of faith with this particular army. But now he could rejoice to see someone else of like mind and heart believing in God. Have you ever been there? Many of you have. If you've moved at all in your life, you know what this is like in a lesser form. Where are the believers? My heart is the Lord's. Where's anybody who cares about God like I do? Don't they care? They say they do, but I don't see it. What's wrong with these people? How can they sing to God and not care? We hear this over and over and over again. And then... When you meet somebody, and, and usually a lot of times God does this so creatively, and you go, where have you been? 
and you immediately know that you have a history with them because you're in Christ together. And they know it, and you know it. Jonathan could now rejoice because he saw someone else of like mind and heart believing God. And instead of feeling down that David's exploits seem so much bigger than his, literally, Jonathan rejoiced in David's great faith. How do we react when someone comes along who exceeds us in ability, faith, or gifts? Do we react by trying to undermine that person? Do we rejoice in God's provision? Look, God raised up somebody who can do this much more than me. That means that the gospel will get out much faster than if I was just doing it myself. And maybe to people that I would never even want to go talk to because of this or that. See what's going on here? We get territorial. We get holding on to our rights. We get resentful. We want to be like so-and-so. Do you see any of that here? No, you don't. There's another great example in the New Testament. John the Baptist. In John 1, he says this of Jesus, but he's talking to the crowds that were there with him. But among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He was glad to be the lesser. Only faith makes us glad and willing to be the lesser. And it's a beautiful thing to see, is it not? And isn't it encouraging and doesn't it set you free to be who God made you to be without worrying about being who God didn't make you to be? Yes, it does. So first, love rejoices. Second, love gives. We read in verse 3, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. This is an outer robe, okay? Get that straight first. Think how encouraged David must have been. And we haven't looked at it from his perspective yet. To see the king's son rejoicing in in David's victory. Would that have blown you away? Then Jonathan gives him a very great gift. His armor, 
all of it. What is he doing? This is the best of the best armor. It's the prince's armor. But the even greater gift was what the gift meant. Can you picture this scene? He takes off his robe, he takes off his armor, and he presents it to this probably teenage boy. Older teenage boy, but he's still young. Who had just killed a nine-foot-nine giant and had been holding his head. This is the prince of Israel. What he's doing is he is endorsing David, his only rival, the only rival to him, Jonathan, in terms of military initiative and bravery. This is an incredible picture. In fact, Jonathan willingly and subserviently relinquished his outer garments and instruments that signified his position as prince of Israel and heir to the throne. There's a lot going on here. He discerned to some degree, there's an argument about to what degree, but it's pretty clear something big was going on. He discerned to some degree that David was God's anointed. And without any reservation at all, he offered the robe of succession to the true king of Israel. Jonathan's act did something else. It communicated something to all of his men. Remember, he was a leader of one whole part of the army back when he took those initiatives. What did it communicate to his men? Guys, what would that communicate to you if you saw your commander taking off his army and presenting him to the guy that just defeated Goliath? It would free you up to follow him. Jonathan is not stupid. He knows that there's something wrong with his own father, which we are going to see really quickly here, even to a greater degree than throwing spears, although that happens again. And it's communicating to his men and freeing them up which is an incredible thing to do for, for, for Jonathan to do. It's not just about him. He's concerned about his men. And the inner turmoil of divided loyalties that soldiers feel when they see weird things going on with their leaders. Again, only faith makes us willing to be the lesser Faith causes us to surrender the rights that we pretend to have. Because <laughs> a lot of it's just pretension. 
Where sin would have made enemies, faith here made brothers. The third thing love does that we see here is it blesses. It rejoices, it gives, and it blesses. And this kind of giving love blesses people by building up and equipping the recipient. Do you see that here? In the very areas that they may need encouragement, strengthening, and equipping. In other words, Jonathan was blessing David. He was encouraging him. He was strengthening him. And he was equipping him to be free to do what God had called him to do that Jonathan had figured out. Jonathan seems to then really understand this. And we will see in the chapters ahead how his loyalty and creative encouragement was so important to David in crisis after crisis after crisis. Love is described in just this way in the New Testament, is it not? To the discouraged, love gives encouragement. To the wayward, love gives kind biblical counsel. To the overwhelmed, love gives understanding and practical help. To the broken, what does love give? Compassion. So even though later Saul looks at this covenant, I mean, he knows what's going on here, between Jonathan and David as their conspiracy for his downfall. See, there's always the political side going on. And that's how Saul, the unconverted Saul, the worldly Saul, that's how he views life. And he's going to act on it, on this thought. He sees them conspiring to get rid of him. Jonathan, though, obviously took seriously his pledge to David, even though it cost him. What did it cost him? His father? He was still pretty much alone in his faith. The cost to Jonathan was great. In Jonathan's pledge or covenant with David, we've got to see that Jonathan freely gave what he was not really obliged to give as Saul's son, but which he took seriously once he made it Once he made this promise, this covenant, and he was faithful to David to the day he died. We see in verse 5 that David was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set him over the men of war, which was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now this is going to become clear in the next couple of weeks especially. But Saul sees what? He sees that the Lord is with David. And what we already learned, that the Lord removed his spirit from equipping Saul 
to be the protector king of Israel. So you can imagine how this was driving him crazy. Jonathan's friendship and encouragement had much to do with David's success. God had raised him up for a particular reason. And David, as the type of Christ in the kingly line through which Christ would come, this is, this is important. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10 Many of you know this, but this, this relationship especially gives a great picture of it. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. In closing today, we need to consider one more thing. Jonathan models the way a believer is knit in a bond of covenant faith with the, the Christ, with Jesus Christ. Allegiance and loyalty are big here. In other words, saving faith is not only involving assenting to the truth regarding Jesus, but saving faith includes the gift of allegiance and the surrender of our will to his sovereign reign. And that's the picture. That's what's really important to get. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are again amazed at your work. How down through history you worked out your redemptive plan to come through Jesus. And at this point in history, you are raising up the king through whom his family would come, this Savior, your son, the Lord. And we see how you raise up your people just when your people are needed to carry out your will in ways that that we couldn't even ever figure out. And we thank you that both of these men had hearts after your own heart and that you used them in so many ways to point to Christ and also to show us our need of Christ as a Savior and how you're the only one who can meet that need. And we pray that as we continue in this Old Testament book, that we would be open and as your spirit attends your word, that we could understand the connections and be encouraged and equipped to believe you, to follow through, trusting in you, so that honor and glory may be brought to your name. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for the benediction? The grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Hope to see you at 6 o'clock over at Westview Christian to hear Dr. Lane Tipton. You will love it. <laughs>